Hello and welcome to Tani Talks Life, which we try to do in a bi-weekly format. The year where we talk a topic per session from life with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic is Beyond the Knife, How to Save a Life. Sources come from safaria.org and elsewhere. Look out for the points to carry over the PTCs to take with you, hopefully, from the shear. All shearum are on shearenjoyment.com slash shearum slash shearum dash reb dash t. Shout out to Jake W. and Ellie N. for all their amazing hard work on sheer enjoyment. The newly revamped Tani Talks formats, including the Life Series, Pirkei Avos, Parsha, and OT shows are on different podcast forums with a new special website link, while the DAF show is on sheer enjoyment, which we now call Tani Talks DAF, TTD. If you have any feedback, questions, comments, suggestions, topic ideas, or just want to reach out, please feel free to email me anytime at rebt at sheerenjoyment.com, still keeping that name for email purposes, R-E-B-T, at sheerenjoyment.com. The sheer should serve as a, as a zechus for the, the aliyah of the neshama of my paternal grandfather, Michal Shlomo ben Yitzchak, whose yard site is tonight, Bo Bayom Now. The sheer should also serve as a zechus and Yeshua and Rafua for anyone who wants or anyone who needs. Everyone should be healed and have a Yeshua and Rafua Bikarov. Have you ever heard of the bystander effect? Do you know what it is? It is actually a fascinating principle. I was a psychology major at Yeshiva University for undergrad, and social psychology was, was one of the most interesting parts of the psych major. And this was a principle I found quite captivating when studying in undergrad. The principle basically talks about how if many people are around at the time of an event, especially one that may, may need someone to intervene, people are less likely to intervene, assuming someone else will take care of it because there are other people around, especially if there are a lot of other people around. The bystander effect. Wikipedia explains the bystander effect or bystander apathy, otherwise known as the Genovese syndrome, is a social psychological theory that states that individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when there are other people present. First proposed in 1964, much research, mostly in the lab, has focused on increasingly varied factors such as the number of bystanders, ambiguity, group cohesiveness, and diffusion of responsibility. Thinking someone else will take care of it, there's people around, it diffuses who's responsible for the situation that reinforces mutual denial. The theory was prompted by the murder of, of Kitty Genovese, about which it was wrongly reported that 38 bystanders watched passively. We'll see the full case in a minute. Amir Tashem. Recent research has focused on real-world events captured on security cameras and the coherency and robustness of the effect has come under question. More recent studies also show that this effect can generalize to workplace settings where subordinates more often refrain from informing managers regarding ideas, concerns, and opinions. 
The bystander effect was first demonstrated and popularized in the laboratory in the laboratory by social psychologist John M. Darley and Bib Latane. In 1968, after they became interested in the topic following the murder of Kitty Genovese in 1964, these researchers launched a series of experiments that resulted in one of the strongest and most replicable effects in social psychology. In a typical experiment, the participant is either alone or among a group of other participants or confederates. An emergency situation is staged and researchers measure how long it takes the participants to intervene if they intervene, if they intervene. These experiments have found that the presence of others inhibits helping often by a large margin. For example, Biblatani and Judith Roden in 1969 staged an experiment around a woman in distress where subjects were either alone, with a friend, or with a stranger. 70% of the people alone called out or went to help the woman after they believed she had fallen and was hurt. But when paired with a stranger, only 40% offered help. Philpot et al. in 2019 examined over 200 sets of real-life surveillance video recordings from the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and South Africa to answer the most pressing question for actual public victims whether help would be forthcoming at all. They found that intervention was the norm, and in over 90% of conflicts, one or more bystanders intervened to provide help. Increased bystander presence can increase the likelihood that someone would intervene, according to their study, even if the chance of each individual bystander responding is reduced, according to this more recent study. But there are many studies, this is just one of them. Wikipedia explains the case that is the basis for the idea of the bystander effect. In the early hours of March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese, a 28-year-old bartender, was stabbed outside the apartment building where she lived in the Kew Garden neighbor neighborhood of Queens in New York City. Lowell, anyway, we should never know from such things. Two weeks after the attack, the New York Times published an article claiming that 38 people, 38 witnesses, saw or heard the attack and none of them called the police None of them came to help her. The incident prompted inquiries into what became known as the bystander effect, or Genevieve syndrome. And the murder became a staple of U.S. psychology textbooks, even my textbook when studying in undergrad, for the next four decades. However, researchers have since uncovered major inaccuracies in the New York Times article. Police interviews revealed that some witnesses had attempted to call the police. Reporters at a competing news organization discovered in 1964 that the article was inconsistent with the facts, but they were unwilling at the time to challenge New York Times editor Abe Rosenthal. In 2007, an article in the American Psychologist found no evidence for the presence of 38 witnesses, or that witnesses observed the murder, or that witnesses remained inactive. In 2016, the New York Times called its own reporting flawed, stating that the original story grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. A person was found and convicted of the crime within a week after the crime, Winston Mosley. However, the principle in effect stands, and that's what we're looking at. In many instances, the more people are around, the less likely, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, it is for one person to actually step up and intervene. The more people that are around, the less likely for one person to get up and do something.
Wikipedia also talks about how John Quinone in his primetime show, Primetime, What Would You Do, on ABC, a very famous show. We've seen different episodes in college and beyond. Basically tests the bystander effect. He puts people into different situations to see if anyone will respond, if anyone will stand up. We've talked about a show in the past regarding the Kiddush Hashem, how one person, when there's a check lying around, everyone either pockets it or pretends they don't see it or walks away with it. One person, one person tries to find the owner of the check and that person, of course, was a religious Jewish Orthodox person. But in general, the show has actors that are used to act out typically non-emergency situations while the cameras capture the reactions and actions of innocent bystanders. Topics include, besides for the check, cheating on a millionaire test, an elderly person shoplifting, racism and dealing with special needs children in very mean ways or yelling at customers. We've seen many different episodes, many different situations or someone not properly watching a kid. Much, much, much more is done on the show. Highly recommended. Very interesting show. And there are, thank God, sometimes people that do stand up. But in general, in general, as a general rule on the show, many of the people in these situations do nothing. Many, most of the people in the situations do absolutely nothing. Very few people stand up. Very few people lift themselves to the plate. Very few people actually come about and do the right thing. This is not the Jewish way. Judaism, as dictated by Hashem, makes every single one of us culpable to stand up, take a position, and help out those around us. Judaism makes us responsible to challenge and break the bystander effect, especially in cases of danger. We know the Talmud tells us, Call Yisrael Aravim Zelazeh. Every single Jew is liable and culpable to one another because we're all brothers and sisters. And the Talmud tells us that whoever saves one life, it is as if he saves the entire world. This is a key saying for tonight and for life that we will keep coming back to. Whoever saves one life, one life, it is as if he saves the entire world. One person can literally save the world. I would also extend it to mean that if one person can change one person's life, it is as if he changed the entire world. Hence, it seems much more reachable, much more attainable to make a difference in someone's life, to make a difference in the world, focusing on one person at a time. One person. Who can you touch in your life? Who can you change in your life? Who can you influence for the better in your life? One soul who was brought back to the Jewish people, one person reconnected, one person reignited, is one soul saved. Is really the whole world saved. Bishvili nivra ha'olam, the saying goes, for me the world was created. So call Adam Olam Ba'atzmo. Each person is a world in and of themselves, to themselves. So really saving one person is really saving a world, is really saving the world. If we can take a small part in this, we can literally light up and save the entire world. We often get intimidated by thinking about famous people or famous characters who change the whole world. 
But it doesn't have to be that way. We can just focus on one person at a time, trying to change for the better even one individual within the world. When I think of people saving the world one person at a time, I literally think of Hatzalah, running around saving people person by person, day by day, around the world and in Israel and united Hatzalah in Israel and abroad, along with Magin David Adom in Israel as well. These heroes go above and beyond to try to, to help and save every single life or help any single individual, regardless of nationality, regardless of creed or religion, any single individual who is in need of assistance. I think of the firefighters who run towards fire and danger to help out when everyone else is running away. I think of the cops who run towards shootings, toward danger when everyone else runs away. On some level, even much more minute, this is what we as the Jewish people must do in our day in and day out lives, helping anyone who is physically or metaphorically, spiritually or cognitively screaming out for help or not, but needs help in whatever manner they need help. The Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us to repeat, and we'll see the full source and context, God willing, later, Anyone who sustains one soul from the Jewish people, the verse ascribes him credit as if he has sustained an entire world. An entire world. Kol Adam Olam Bishvil Atzmo. Every person, the saying goes from the Talmud, is a person into and of himself. So when you save one person, you save the world. H.com points out from the handbook of Rabbi Arye Kaplan, with the exception of three cardinal sins, one must violate any religious law to save a life. As the Torah says, keep my decrees and laws since a person can truly live only by keeping them. V'chai bahem, v'lo bahem. The phrase goes, as the Talmud explains, and we learn from the Torah, v'chai bahem, you're supposed to live by them, not die by them, God forbid. You live by keeping the mitzvos and by helping others and not die by keeping them, God forbid. Although keeping the Shabbos is considered a foundation of our religion, it may be violated in any manner necessary to save a life. In such a case, it is a meritorious deed to violate the Shabbos, and one who hesitates is guilty of bloodshed, God forbid. When the Shabbos is violated in a case of danger, it must be done by responsible adults and not by children or non-Jews, even where possible. However, if it is possible to avoid violating the Shabbos without causing any delay, it is permissible to do so. Similarly, a dangerously sick or starving person may eat any forbidden food necessary to preserve his life. In such a case, it's permitted. Even pork and even bread on Passover. Again, I am not a rabbi. This comes from Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Although Yom Kippur is our most sacred day of atonement, one whose life may be endangered by fasting is forbidden to do so. In such a case, one obtains atonement even without fasting. In all cases of sickness and injury, rely upon the opinion of a physician. As soon as he says that there is even a question of danger, religious law may be violated to preserve life, even if it is not certain that a given cure will help. Rabbi Kaplan also points out, as depicted on H.com, talking from the handbook, and in any case, one who neglects to save a life when the opportunity presents itself is guilty of violating the commandment. Do not stand still while your neighbor's life is in danger. In guilty violating the commandment of do not stand while your, blood's, your brother's blood is being spilled God forbid do not stand idly by do not have the bystander effect therefore one is obliged to spend any amount of money necessary to save a Jewish life but the victim must repay it if 
and when he is able, if possible. Nevertheless, one not need endanger life or limb to save another. If several persons are in danger, where all cannot be saved, a religious scholar is given priority. Similarly, one should give precedence to his own parents or other relatives as well as his teachers. And of course, Galvachomer, his spouse, we should never know from such things, and his kids, we should never know from such things, Lolenu. In all cases not involving a life or death situation, as for instance, when a woman's honor is at stake, whether it be for food or clothing, she takes precedence over a man, since the shame she could suffer is potentially greater. Just as we are required to save a fellow Jew from danger, so too we must rescue any non-Jew who worships God, such as a Christian or Muslim. The Torah thus states, help him survive, whether he's a proselyte or a resident alien coming from Vayikra. This implies that we are required to sustain these non-Jews and provide them with charity and food as the Torah therefore later states in Devarim, you may give it to a resident alien in your settlement so that he may eat it. However, saving one's life comes first. One need not give his life to save another as the Torah states, let our brother live alongside you from Vayikra. V'chai achicha imach. You shall live alongside your brother, the Pasuk goes, which implies that one's own life comes first. Therefore, for example, as the Gemara points out, we'll see later on, if two people are in a desert, very famous, and one has just enough water for himself, he need not share it with the other. Similarly, one need not endure excessive pain or suffering to save another's life, although it is not required as an act of piety to give one's life to save a community or a great religious leader. There's nothing more precious and irreplaceable than life in the eyes of God. Therefore, one who saves a single life is counted as if he saved the entire world. What can you do to go beyond the knife to save a life? What can we do to think beyond the knife to save a life? Do what you can to save another soul. Use your money. Use your resources, use your talents, use the labor of your hands to effect help, to effect change, to effect saving. H.com points out from author Dr. Miller, Tully Abraham and his wife Sarah were running two hours late for an event on Sunday, March 30th, 2019. As Tully, a 30-year-old kosher caterer, sped along the Verrazano Narrow Bridge, the bridge to where I grew up from Staten Island, on his way into Brooklyn for the event, a series of coincidences, otherwise known as Hashgacha, from Hashem, Hashgacha Pratis, put him in the right place to save a man's life. There are so many things that happen in the space of a few moments, Tully explained in an H.com interview. Without any of these components, I would not have been successful. It was raining hard and traffic was bad. The left lane that Tully was taking to the upper level of the bridge was closed. He was forced to move over several lanes to the right. That left Tully and Sarah in the lane closest to the edge of the bridge, behind a car that suddenly stopped. The driver put on his hazards and exited his car. If I was in the left lane, I wouldn't have thought anything of it, Tully recalls, saying that at first it seemed the driver was checking something wrong with his car. Instead of going back into his car, however, the driver, an elderly man of about 79, according to later news reports, walked over to the railing at the edge of the bridge. As Tully watched, the man stepped over the railing, balanced onto the far side at the very edge of the bridge, and prepared to jump to jump into the icy waters far below. Without stopping to think, Tully raced out of his own car to the edge and grabbed the man's jacket. 
The man shouted at Tully that he should let him go. But Tully hung on with all his might. As he concentrated on holding on to the man and preventing him from ending his life, Tully wondered about his own safety. It was raining and it was slippery, he explains. And he hoped he wouldn't slip and fall off the bridge with the man, God forbid. As precious moments ticked by and Tully struggled with the man, countless people drove by in their cars, ignoring the scene, choosing not to help. A classic example of the bystander effect. Eventually, a state trooper drove by and saw the scene. Eventually, after how many people drove by and did nothing, he too raced out of his car and grabbed the man's clothes. Together, he and Tully tried to get a secure grip on the man and bring him back inside the railing. But the railing is about chest high, so it's impossible to pull anybody up, almost. After a few minutes, finally, another bystander came to help, as well as emergency personnel. Together, the group of rescuers managed to drag the man back inside the railing. An ambulance took him to the hospital. For Tully, the encounter has profoundly changed the way he looks at the world. For days afterwards, he explains he was still shaking. People have called him a hero, but he doesn't think of himself that way. I did what anybody would have done, or should have done, I would say. Tully explains, although, as was depicted, many people drove by and did nothing. Many people went by and did absolutely nada. The bystander effect in full force. He didn't ask for the publicity and accolades that he's received. I want to move on. I want to continue without being me with the attention. Without the attention, with being myself. I learned it doesn't matter where you are and what your background is. Everybody should try and make a difference, he says. He also cautions that no matter how people react, they should recognize that they did the best they felt they could. People second-guess their actions and beat themselves up afterwards, he notes. Instead, we should be kinder to ourselves and acknowledge that in a moment of emergency, it's not always easy to know what to do. At the end of the day, you did your best. Assuming you try and do something to begin with and fight the bystander effect. Pointing to this series of coincidences, Hashkacha, that put him in the right place at the right time, Tully feels he was placed in that situation on that bridge for a reason. Judaism teaches there is no such thing as a coincidence. Everything that happens is part of a larger plan and has a purpose. In Hebrew, this is known as Hashkacha Pratis, or Divine Providence. We have a whole talk about this, a whole episode about this look out for the divine providence one on the tani talks life recognizing that a series of seemingly random twists of fate can lead us to the very purpose we are meant to fulfill in our own lives when he considers all the different components of that day on the bridge the fact that he was forced into the right lane he was running late wound up behind the suicidal driver that he was helped by passing by just as he needed it that he somehow found the strength to hold on to the man without slipping or losing his grip Tully feels he was part of a larger plan that day. He strongly feels he witnessed the hand of God, putting him in the exact position necessary to do what he could to help a fellow human being and save his life. What can we do to go beyond the knife to save a life? What can we do to make things right and save that life, to fight the bystander effect and not sit idly by the side? Realize you too may be put in a certain place at a certain time by Hashem to help out those around you. 
in a myriad of small and large ways. And Mona Braverman writes on Aish.com that there is a video featuring the former chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, Allah Shalom. He told the story of his near drowning in Italy on his honeymoon, of his rescue by an anonymous bystander, and of the resulting greater gratitude he has had every day ever since. When he woke up to a new day, he appreciated this gift of life. It's an important and beautiful lesson. There's nothing like a personal near-death situation to help at home, but we never, ever, ever should know from such things, none of us. The Talmud teaches that if you save one life, you save an entire world. Little did that kind Italian civilian know what he was doing. Little did he understand the ramifications of his act. Although in our limited tangible world, his name is lost to us, it may be that Rabbi Sachs never knew who he was or had a chance to thank him in the ensuing chaos of that day, that Italian man had a massive impact on British Jewry and in fact on international Jewry. All the countless speeches Rabbi Sachs gave, all the books he wrote, all the Torah thoughts he published can be credited to the quick-thinking Italian beachgoer. He may not even remember the incident. It was a long time ago and his day probably continued as normal. He was never fed and he was never applauded. He didn't win any medals and he also doesn't know the name of the one he saved. But his kind act, his act of kindness impacted an entire world. Wow. That really gives pause. We engage in so many small acts every day, so many ordinary moments. For sure, rescuing someone from near drowning isn't exactly ordinary, but we are called upon to do a lot of seemingly trivial acts of kindness for others, acts soon forgotten. Some for people whose name we will never know or who will quickly forget as the rest of life's demands pull on us. But who knows what the impact of those acts can be? Who knows whose life was changed? Who knows what they were able to contribute to the world because of a kindness we showed them? Who knows what we were able to contribute to the world because of the way we grew from the kindness we showed them? In Pirkei Avos, Tani Talks Pirkei Avos is what we now call it, Season 5, God willing, after the summer, we just finished Season 4. In Ethics of Our Fathers, we are admonished not to distinguish between minor and major mitzvos because we don't really know how to judge or categorize them. Otherwise known. We don't know the reward for them. We don't know how to categorize them. This is really Hashem's department. What we think of as big act of kindness may not have the intended impact, while a small act may have an ongoing ripple effect. If we save a fellow human being, either physically or spiritually, we save an entire world. We save all their descendants. We save their ability to affect this world. But we don't really know how that will be manifest. Neither did this young Italian, but we, the Jewish people today, can see what a difference he made. And when he arrives in the world of souls, he will get a royal welcome. He will have a reserved seat and will discover what, what seemed like a minor act at the time was actually something that changed the world. All of our actions have ripple effects and butterfly effects. Even small acts can have major ramifications and effects on other people. Never underestimate how powerful your deeds can have and how they can affect on this world. H.com points out with author Adam Ross from 2019, a phenomenal story. Mendel Gordon, an American lone soldier in the IDF, in the Tzva Hahakanali Israel Tzahal, the IDF, completed his service as a paratrooper and met the girl of his dreams only to learn just weeks after they were engaged that he had the machala, the disease. 
Doctors in Israel advise that he should seek emergency surgery in the United States to the tune of $90,000, a sum way beyond his family's means. What happened next was remarkable. In an exclusive interview with H.com, Mendel Gordon described the incredible story of friendship that saw the soldiers in his army unit stand by their brother in arms and raise every dollar needed to pay for the complicated surgery that saved his life. Originally from Brooklyn, Mendel Gordon signed up to serve in the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, in 2015 after falling in love with the land of Israel during a year of yeshiva study. After convincing his parents of his plan to join a combat unit and passing a tough physical trial, he enlisted in the Paratroopers Brigade, where he saw two and a half years of active duty in Hebron and along the Gaza border, preventing attacks into Israeli territory. Despite the cultural and language differences he faced being a lone soldier from another country, Mendel says the friendships he made in the army ran deep. It's through what you go through together day in and day out that friendships develop. You have to literally watch each other's backs, he said. Constantly protecting each other, looking out for each other, creates a powerful feeling of mutual responsibility. In October 2017, feeling energized and excited about life, having just been discharged from the army, he began dating Ruhama Tokeir, the 19-year-old sister of a friend from his yeshiva days, quickly realized he had found the girl he wanted to marry. He proposed, she accepted, life was dreamy until his life took an unforeseen change of course. While spending Shabbos at his fiance's home, Mendel noticed three small bumps on his neck. We should never know from such things. Lolina. I didn't feel unwell at all, he said, but he got things checked out. Following a biopsy and multiple blood tests just before Pesach in April 2018, Mendel learned the devastating news that an aggressive form of Hodgkin's lymphoma had spread throughout his body. The couple took the advice of their family and rabbis and postponed their wedding plans when doctors backtracked on initial optimism that they could treat his condition after struggling to locate the origin of his disease. As a heavy question mark loomed over their future, Mendel was referred to the Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York, where more similar cases had been treated. After the diagnosis was confirmed, he updated his family made calls to his army friends to let them know what was going on. After the word got out, Mendel's phone received a flurry of supportive messages, many from the soldiers in his unit. We're with you, said one. We got you back, read another. Without any hesitation, Ruhama Mendel's fiance insisted she would accompany him to New York for his treatment, although at the time there was no idea how long it would take or whether it would be successful. Once in the United States, the Gordon family learned that his treatment would cost around $90,000, and together with family and friends, they got to work to raise the money. My parents didn't have the money, and I had no way to fund what was needed, he explained. There were so many medical bills to pay. Initially, they held a bracha, a bracha blessing party, which doubled as an engagement party in which some 300 friends and family arrived with donations and good wishes, with most of Mendel's friends and family meeting his soon-to-be wife, Ruhama, for the first time. We raised a good amount, but it was no way near what was necessary, and time was not on my side, he said. It was through a Facebook post about this event that Mendel's army's friend first learned, his friends first learned from the army, that he needed to raise a large sum of money. Recalling his army service, Mendel says his company commander, Roe Friedberg, was someone he'd go to for advice, but not someone he felt he had an especially close relationship with. I always liked him, don't get me wrong. 
but I didn't have more of a connection with him than any of the other soldiers. What happened next showed him that the bonds of friendship went far deeper than he could have thought. Roy Friedrich immediately mobilized the 150 soldiers under his command, detailing Gordon's situation and explained that although he was now on the other side of the world, Mendel needed their help and they would do whatever it took to help him. Issuing an unusual order, the soldiers were commanded to take out their phones and share a high-impact post to social media with a link to a fundraising site Friedberg had created. They literally went to war for me, Mendel said. But Friedberg wasn't done, or Friedberg. Since the unit needed extra firepower, he decided they would all reach out to Omer Adam, the famous Israel singer, a very popular singer in Israel, and implore him to add his weight to their campaign. We will all send him a message at 1 p.m. today. He told the paratroopers, and we will resend him this message every day at this time until he shares our post to his tens of thousands of fans. Omer Adam did share the post, and the unit turned their attention to other Israeli singers and performers, along with other initiatives, concluding with a sponsored 5KM run with a beer party at the finishing line. As the campaign grew in momentum, eventually involving over 5,000 people, Mendel and his family looked on in wonder from New York. The full amount was raised. The spirit of friendship spearheaded by his company commander left his family speechless. I think then my parents started to understand more what I was doing in Israel in the first place and why I was drawn to want to be there all of that time. I was shocked, beyond shocked, at how much everyone helped, said Mendel's mother, Mindy Gordon. It was beyond amazing. At Sloan Kettering, Mendel reached well, reacted well to treatment and underwent the complex surgery, which removed the disease from throughout his body. Doctors closely monitored him after the surgery and eventually gave him the all clear. Mendel attributes his recovery to Hashem and to the collective effort from friends, family, and especially from his unit. Hundreds of people had joined his uh, Tehillim group for his recovery. As I realized how many people really cared what the soldiers in my unit were doing for me and how many people were thinking about me, it made me feel like there was an extra force out there giving an extra push fighting with me. All the while, his bride, Ruhama, was there by his side in the weeks following the surgery, visiting and caring for him every day. The couple finally went back to Israel on November 25th, this is from 2019, to get plans back on track for the wedding. At the airport, they were met by over 30 soldiers and commanders from his unit. It's just an amazing feeling of being a part of something so strong, Mendel said. The couple had to rethink their wedding plans, this time for positive reasons, with hundreds of people who had supported him wanting to take part in the celebrations. Not wanting to exclude anyone, they left an open invitation to join for the dancing with around 500 guests indicating they would come. Finding a wedding hall that would suit them and that they could also afford also involved an incredible turn of events, which began the night after Mendel's surgery when he received a text from a soldier in his army unit whose father owned a large hall in Jerusalem and wanted to offer it to the couple for free. Later, when they understood how many people wanted to attend, Rahama made inquiries from New York and found a perfect place in Israel. When she explained why she and her fiancé couldn't come and see the place in person, yet the owner replied that his son was serving in her fiancé's unit. He already offered them the venue for free. Mendel and Ruhama were speechless. We couldn't believe it, Mendel said. The feeling of being looked after throughout all of this was immense. We never knew what was happening in our lives. He added, but I felt that I have had God's protection throughout. 
at his wedding, he had an opportunity to say some to say some words to the friends who had done so much for him. There are things that are very hard to express in words. I told them they were my friends for life and how much they helped me, how they saved my life in more ways than one. This was the wedding I didn't know would ever happen. Today, Baruch Hashem newlyweds Mendel and Rucham Gordon living in Israel with the drama of the past years behind them. They should be healthy and happy, them and all of us that may have us from Shana. And they're working to make the world a brighter place. Mendel now works at a startup company in Jerusalem committed to realizing his dreams and changing the world for the better. Mi ka'amcha Yisrael. How amazing the Jewish nation is. How amazing it can be to help someone out physically, spiritually, emotionally, in so many ways. Professor HaKohen points out on H.com, one doesn't have to be crazy to be an Israeli, but it sure helps, goes the famous saying. It is usually heard when talking about Zionism, but it can equally apply to Israeliness. The Israeli search and rescue teams and the country's above and beyond relief efforts in disaster zones, such as most recently in Florida, everybody should have a full shlema, they should find everybody, and there should be only good things we hear about down there. And in other disaster zones are among the most classic symptoms of Israel's craziness. Starvation in Biafra, tsunami in Thailand, earthquake in Japan, floods in the U.S., volcanic eruptions and avalanches. You can rest assured that Israeli trekkers and emissaries of the Chabad Lubavitch movement will be there. And Israeli humanitarians will be dispatched there in a timely manner if they haven't arrived there already. In Jewish tradition, saving a life, pikuach nefesh, trumps almost everything else. Monetary costs play no role. That is why the circumstances surrounding a tragedy are immaterial as it is, as is its cause. What matters in such cases are the lives at stake, even if only one person is in peril. As the Talmudic saying goes, Whoever saves a life, it is as considered as if he saved an entire world. The sense of solidarity and collective responsibility go beyond rhetoric, prayers, and the recitation of Tehillim for the well-being of the victims. It involves concrete and immediate steps to provide relief and save as many lives as possible, as quickly as possible. This is where the rubber meets the road. Yes, such an undertaking costs a lot. It's often subject to heavy criticism because of the manpower and resources it requires and the risk it entails because of the conditions on the ground. Critics say it would be wiser to turn our attention to domestic woes before going overseas. They would like to see most of the resources expended at home in Israel for the sake of the citizens who live in Israel. While this approach may have some merit to it, could make economic sense, it runs against the grain of Jewish and Israeli tradition. Saving lives costs a lot, but the state of Israel has always been cognizant of this, knowing full well that the value of life is priceless. Money comes and money goes, but human life, any human, has no substitute. Yes, being economical is a virtue, but we must not let our concern for the lives of others be part of this equation. H.com points out from author Menucha Khan 11, Nadav ben Yehuda, age 24, a law student from Rehovot, loves mountain climbing. His quest was to be the youngest Israeli climber to reach the peak of Mount Everest. 200 climbers were attempting to scale the summit of the 29,035-foot mountain in a bitterly cold weekend in May. Still, all was going well for ben Yehuda, who was tantalizingly within reach of the world's highest peak. He continued slogging upward, his Sherpa guide behind him until he suddenly came to a stop just 250 meters away from the summit. 
He stumbled across the unconscious body of a Turkish climber, Aden Ermak, lying in the snow. Nadav had to make an excruciating decision. He could continue to climb and reach the mountain peak, or he could try to save Ermak's life. But when Nadav saw Aden stranded on the mountain, he was not thinking of politics. He saw a fellow human being who was about to die. And to him, the decision was not even a contest. He was going to help. Nadav said he was unconscious. He had no gloves, no oxygen, no crampons, no cover. He was waiting for the end. I was certain I could have made it to the summit. But if I had continued climbing, there's no question Ermak would have died. Other climbers just passed him by and didn't lift a finger. Did not lift a finger. But I had no second thoughts. I knew that I had to save him. Bystander effect. Again, in effect. Save for the one Jew, the one Jewish person who stood up to the task. Nadav tied Ermak to his harness and began the descent, a nine-hour journey to the nearest base. Saving Ermak was probably even more difficult than trying to reach the summit. Saving a life is a greater priority than being the youngest Israeli to scale Everest, Nadav said. You never leave a friend in the field. Not only saving a life, going beyond the knife to save a life, but also a massive Kiddush Hashem. What can we do to go beyond the knife to save a life? What can we do to be involved in saving a life? doesn't have to be literally saving their life from unconsciousness. Anything we could do to help them save their life spiritually, religiously, emotionally, cognitively, physically. What can we do? What can you do to go beyond to save a life? H.com also points out from the IDF that they build a hospital by Syria, a field hospital, even though relations there are not good. Regardless of the tense relations between Israel and Syria, who are not on really good terms, IDF soldiers have continued to apply a core Jewish value. Whoever saves one life saves the entire world. When we realized we could be receiving many patients, we decided to build a field hospital so that we could treat people with serious injuries who require immediate care, Colonel Bader said, explaining that the victims were so badly injured that they would not have survived the trip to a civilian hospital. I would even go further to say that actual terrorists, actual people who are bent on destruction of the Jewish people from Gaza, from, from areas all over, from, from areas that are heavily laden with people who are Arabs from the Syria, from Jordan, from Lebanon, they come to Israel for life-saving treatment and Israelis treat them even though this is their enemy. Even though these are people who are just intent on destroying them because pikuach nefesh goes beyond all things. They are there to save the life they are there to save the life. Dr. Miller points out from H.com in 2019. Hungry customers waiting to order at Falafel Harel in the Israeli coastal city of Bat Yam might not have realized just how special the man behind the counter is. Tal Kupferstein, a married father of five, recently opened the falafel shop at the time of the article. In August, when he's not behind the counter filling orders, he's also a volunteer with United Hatzalah, an amazing organization. Israel's cutting-edge volunteer emergency medical service organization. United Hatzalah is a group of over 5,000 ordinary, quote-unquote, Israelis who volunteered to undergo emergency training and be on call, ready to respond to medical emergencies anywhere in the country, serving everyone, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of national origin. 
Equipped with GPS technology and specially outfitted motorcycles or bicycles, volunteers have an average response time of just three minutes nationwide. In Israeli cities and metropolitan areas, they have an average response time of 90 seconds, a minute and a half. On November 15, 2019, Tal Kufrin received a call about a nearby accident and set off to help. Tragically, sadly, while he was responding, he himself was hit by a car and was gravely injured. With a punctured lung, broken ribs, and fractures to his pelvis and leg, Tal underwent emergency surgery and faced a lengthy recovery. Once it was clear Tal was out of danger, his fellow Hatzalah volunteers wanted to help. He'd only recently opened Falafel Harel, and the store is the only means of support for Tal's young family. Emergency services had already saved Tal's life. Now Hatzalah stepped in to save his business as well. Hatzalah volunteers signed up to work behind the counter of Falafel Harel, keeping it open and helping the Kupferstein family. Within days, volunteers had signed up for two months' worth of shifts. One Atzala volunteer who owns a falafel shop in the Israeli city of Cholon even closed his own store for a day so he could help keep Tal's shop open. Wow. Reminds me of the story of the fish store in Brooklyn that went up in flames or was destroyed or, or had some issues and a competitor literally took in his competition and let him sell out of his own shop. Again, Mika Amcha Yisrael, amazing. Even Ellie Beer, the founder of United Hatzala, took a shift. As word spread throughout Israel about the Hatzalah volunteers manning the store, Israelis flocked to Falafel Harel for a meal. Some customers were ordering Falafel meals to be delivered to soldiers and first responders. Hatzalah set up an ordering form for meals to be donated in this way. Each meal cost 20 shekels or about $5.75. Within hours of going live, one donor bought a thousand meals to be distributed to soldiers. The international chairman of United Satsala, Mark Gerson, opened a campaign that matched the first 2,000 meals order from the shop to be sent to soldiers and first responders and funding another 2,000 meals as well. As he worked behind the counter dishing up falafel and pita sandwiches, Ellie Beer explained we have the opportunity to raise income for Tal and his family and help our hungry soldiers and first responders at the same time. This is an amazing opportunity for giving. Tal faced a lengthy recuperation, but was cheered by the help and love his predicament has sparked. Thank you to all of my friends and fellow responders, he said. We help each other on a daily basis to go out and save lives. Now they're all banding together to save my business, my livelihood, my livelihood. I'm so grateful to each and every one of them and to the organization as a whole. And as thousands of soldiers and first responders throughout Israel received unexpected gifts of tasty falafel meals, that feeling of gratitude was being spread across all of Israel. Hatzalah responds, and for the Hatzalah people, we must all respond. We are all responsible for one another. The Gemara tells us, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zelazeh. In whatever way we can, we must save, we must help those around us. But it's interesting because society, secular society, has their, their morals and their values a little warped. Listen to this crazy story from H.com with Sarah Yocheved Riegler as the author. Dr. Arnold Relman, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, professor emeritus at Harvard, and one of, the most, one of the world's most venerated physicians, fell down the stairs and broke his neck one year on June 27th. He was rushed to Massachusetts General Hospital, where he immediately told them who he was. As he recounted in the, an issue of the New York Review of Books, within a few minutes to see my cubicle filled with physicians, nurses, and other members of the staff. 
They did many things to save his life. After 11 days in the ICU, Dr. Relman was transferred to the Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, where he continued his rehab, his recovery, for another month. The total cost of his medical care, almost all of which was covered by his insurance through Harvard's faculty plan, came out to $478,000. One more detail not yet mentioned. When he broke his neck, Dr. Arnold Relman was 90 years old. If Joe Schmo, a 90-year-old retired plumber, had arrived at the ER of Mass General after having broken his neck, one wonders what kind of care he would have received. Would the medical staff have mobilized so aggressively to try to save his life? When his heart stopped, would they have resuscitated him three times? Or given his age and the possibility that his broken neck might leave him a quadriplegic, would they have hung a DNR, a do not resuscitate sign on his bed? Would his cardiologist have dropped everything and rushed to the ER to supervise his treatment? Let's face it, our society considers some lives more valuable than others. The value we attribute to a particular life reveals the values we ourselves live by. In the simplest terms, the ultimate value of Western society is productivity. People's lives are considered valuable as long as they are producing, regardless of what they are producing in terms of its benefit to society. He could be the plant manager of a factory that produces 42 shades of paint. She could be an academician researching the customs of the Aztecs. As long as a person produces his or, life, his or her life is valuable, according to society, the value of a person's productivity has a shelf life. No one would hesitate to resuscitate a 69-year-old retiree who broke his neck for his productive life is still fresh, quote-unquote. But 15 years later, we already hear terms such as a burden to society. According to society, a person in a coma is the ultimate non-producer. This explains the growing consensus among many in society that comatose patients should not be fed so that they could be allowed to die. Of course, the exception is important people, quote-unquote, those who have attained prominence in some fields, such as Dr. Arnold Relman. The instinctive response of mass general staff to do everything possible to save up the life of this 90-year-old patient was based on his considerable accomplishments of the past, not on the expectation that he would continue produce, to produce. However, this is diametrically opposed to the Jewish value of life. The Jewish view of the value of life is drastically different. According to Judaism, a soul descends into this world and dons a physical body in order to accomplish a unique mission and to effect a particular tikkun, rectification. One's mission and one's tikkun are as individual as one's fingerprint. And just as different fingerprints cannot be rated hierarchically by standards of beauty, so human beings cannot be judged hierarchically or compared. Each person is climbing his or earns her own spiritual ladder. That's why it makes no sense, Lahabdim, to keep up with the Joneses, to compare yourself to him or her. They have a mansion, they have 16 cars, they have 45 people, it doesn't matter. Everyone has their own spiritual ladder. Since everyone starts on a different ladder at level, it matters not whether one is 20 or 200 meters high, but only how many rungs one has scaled. The author herself has always felt the most Jewish place, the holiest place, is not really the Kotel, the Western Wall, but Alin Hospital for children with severe handicaps. Most of the patients there can barely move a single limb, are incontinent, and cannot talk. Yet huge resources are expended for their care and a large devoted staff works round the clock to lovingly tend to those patients. These are the people who the, who the Germans would have killed, Yemach Shemam. 
considering them worthless. These are the people that we'd have to wonder what society would do with. The Jewish view is adamant. Every human life is valuable. Even in the most disabled body, the soul can still accomplish its work. As long as the soul is in the body, which is the very definition of life, a human being can be affecting his or her rectification. 90-year-old people may not be able to be productive work, workers in some ways, but they can grow in the trait of gratitude. They can accept the services that others render them and can grow in the trait of humility as they suffer the inevitable physical and mental limitations of aging. The inner work is not an epilogue to life. It's the very purpose of life. No matter how much a person has accomplished, when it comes to inner growth, the sky, or really the heaven, is the limit. We must realize that every person has value as long as the soul burns within them, whether they are five minutes old or 105 years old. We should do whatever we can to save and help those around us on a daily basis. What can you do to go beyond the knife to save a life? Whether it be in a physical manner or a spiritual manner, in a literal way or a figurative way, whether right in front of you or metaphorically, there are all many ways we can lend a hand to try to help and save those around us. Whoever saves a life saves an entire world. Go out. Save who you can in any way you can using whatever talents you can to make the world better person by person. We can literally be involved in saving and helping the entire world in such a way. The Gemara and sources point out so many interesting aspects about saving a life. The Gemara in Yuma in 83a points out in the mission of someone has a life-threatening illness, bulmos, causing him unbearable hunger pains and impaired vision, you can feed him even impure foods on Yom Kippur until he recovers. The Mechot of Darabi Yishmael points out that three great sages were walking on the road and they were trying to figure out where is it derived that saving a life overrides the Shabbos. And they talk about if, if someone is found coming to steal, you're allowed to take care of them. So how much more so to save a life overrides the Shabbos. Another sage explains about circumcision, how much more so the whole body. Another one talks about one Shabbos versus other Shabbos, how much more so you could keep the Shabbos. Desecrate one Shabbos in order to keep many Shabbos is the gist of the Gemara. And the point being, we should do what we can to help another in all ways, especially physically, or in a health manner, on Shabbat, or the like. The Gemara Numa points out a little later in 84, one heats water for an ill person on Shabbos, whether to give him to drink or wash him, it might help him recover. They didn't say just for one Shabbos, but even a future Shabbos. You must not say, let's wait and do this later, perhaps we'll get well, do it immediately, especially when life-threatening. That's the point. You got to help a person right away. Do not delay. Do not cause him dismay. The Gemara Baba Metzia 62 asks, What do we do with the verse? What does the sage do with the verse? Rabbi Yochanan, your brother shall live with you. This is the famous story that if there are two people, the Gemara points out, walking on the desolate path that we mentioned before, and there was a little bit of water in possession of a jug of one of them. The situation was such that if both drink, they will both die, and there's not enough water. But if one drinks, he will surely reach a settled area and live. They argue. One says they should both not do it, but Rabbi Kiva comes along and says, the verse states, V'chai achicha imach, explaining, V'chai bahem velo yamus bahem, that your life takes precedence over the life of the other. The point being, you can only help and save others if you help and save yourself first. If you have knowledge or skills in a certain area, then help others who need help 
in that area. For example, if a person conquered the smoking addiction, help save someone else who has the smoking addiction, be their lifeline, be their mentor, be their partner, help them out, save their life. The Gemara Sanhedrin points out the major source of saving a life is saving the world. Adam was the first person teaching us that anyone who destroys one person destroys the entire world. It's as if he destroyed the entire world. Because Adam was the first person that the whole world came from. Conversely, anyone who sustains one soul from the Jewish people here on Sanhedrin 37a, the verse ascribes him credit as if he sustained an entire world. That is the source. The point being, if you save one life, whether religiously, physically, spiritually, cognitively, or the like, it is as if you change the entire world. You save the entire world. I would further say, if you change one life in any manner, it is as if you changed the entire world. What will you do to go change the world? What will you do to go beyond the knife to save the life, to save the world? The Rambam points out in Mishnah Torah and the murderer and the preservation of life, there's no difference between a roof or anything else that's dangerous, likely to cause death to a person who might stumble. If there's a well or a pit, or he has to put something there, he has to cover it, he has to put a surrounding. He has to make sure a person won't fall into it and die, God forbid. Any obstruction that is a danger to life must be removed as a matter of positive duty and extreme necessary caution. And that's the point to carry over. Make sure there is no stumbling block. The Torah teaches us not just an actual block in front of a blind person. Don't do something to cause someone to stumble. Don't give bad advice to cause someone to fall. Don't put a person in a situation that he will fall. And don't have hazards, physical hazards or spiritual hazards around your property or in your life. Make sure you save others from danger in any way whether real blocks or hazards on your property or triggers for him in life. You have a friend who's working on a smoking addiction and you bring him to a place where there's a ton of smoking, why would you do that? You're bringing him to a place where he's fighting for his life, he has a major addiction, he has a major problem, and you bring him to a place that's going to be a trigger, why would you do that? Are you really his friend? Doesn't just mean a blind person. Any person... Do not put a stumbling block in front of them. Save them. Take care of them. Change them. Don't let them stumble and fall. The Rambam points out in Mishnah Torah and Shabbat. A mangled ship at sea or a city surrounded by troops or an overflowing river, it's a commandment to go out and save them with anything which he can save them. It's a commandment to save an individual being chased by an idolater or a snake or a bear that is chasing him to kill him. Do what you can to save him. Even blow a shofar, blow a horn on Shabbat to chase away the enemy. The point being, we need to chip in to help save someone in any manner possible. If a rabid dog is chasing someone, don't stand by. Go after the person and the dog to help. Whatever manner you can, whatever manner we can help, do so. Help them. The Gemara and Sota points out there are some foolish people. The Mishnah points out Rabbi Yeshua would say, A foolish man of piety. A conniving wicked person and other people, these are people who erode the world. The Gemara asks, Who is considered a foolish man of piety? Foolish piety. For example, it is one who sees that a woman is drowning in a river and he says it is not proper conduct to save her. It is not proper conduct to save her. That is a foolish man of piety. 
If someone needs help, the point is, do not use any excuse or quote-unquote halacha to try to get out of helping them. Don't be overtly or, or overly or foolishly extra pious in a nonsensical manner or non-proper situation, non-proper way of thinking. Help the person out. No matter what, even if it is the other gender, especially if it's the other gender or other type of situation, don't use piety as an excuse to let someone drown. God forbid. Don't use piety as an, as an excuse not to help someone else around you. The Gemara in Sanhedrin 73a points out, the Brisa teaches us, where is it derived if you see someone drowning in a river, being dragged away by an animal, being attacked by bandits, you're obligated to save him? The verse says, you shall not stand idly by the blood of another. From Vayikra, lo samod adam re'echa. Literally, don't stand on his blood. Don't be a person who stands idly by. Don't be a bystander. The Pasuk against the bystander effect, lo samod adam re'echa. Do not stand by. Do not be a person of the bystander effect. Fight the effect. Fight the power. Be the power. To be that bystander that actually effects change. That actually helps out. The contemporary halachic problems points out in preemptive war in Jewish law. Jewish law requires that a bystander must intervene. In order to save the life of an intended victim. And that's the point. Do not stand by idly. Do not have the bystander effect. Make sure you are the bystander that effects change. That you intervene and that you help. The, 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 even early on in Boratius, Hashem points out, when you intercede, when you help, help will come to you. Avram was going to help Avimelech, even though Avimelech stole Sarah away from him. He's a prophet. He will intercede for you. He'll save your life. If you fail to do that, he will not, he will not be able to do so to such an effect. The Gemara Tanis points out a fascinating story that Rabbi Broca often found Eliyahu Hanavi in the marketplace. Eliyahu Hanavi is a fascinating character. We talk about him majorly in one of our lecture, in one of our Tani Talks Life. Fascinating, fascinating character. So Rabbi Broca asks Eliyahu, is there anyone here who's going to have Olam Haba? And he says, come back to me tomorrow. I don't really have time. The man's, and uh, I mean, not Eliyahu and Rabbi Broca, they go to this man that they see wearing interesting clothing and they say to him, and, and Eliyahu points out that he's someone that's going to have Olam Haba. So Rabbi Broca goes over to him and says, what, what is your occupation? And that man says to him, go away, I don't have time, come back tomorrow. So Rabbi Broca comes back the next day and he says, what's your occupation? Excuse me. He's wearing black shoes, he's wearing a very interesting uh, type of outfit. He says, I'm a prison guard, a Zan Dukana. And I imprisoned the men separately and the women separately and I placed my bed between them so they will not come to, God forbid, even have thoughts of a sin. When I see a Jewish woman upon whom the Gentiles might think that they like, I risked my life to save her. One day there was a, a, a young woman who was arrested, someone who was betrothed, and I threw, three, I threw their dregs of red wine toward her clothing so that they would leave her alone. The point being, we have to do what we can in any way, in any manner to intervene and save someone on any level. Even throwing paint on someone like the Zandakuna had to do to make sure that he saved her life, that he saved her, her overall. That we could save people around us. Do whatever you can on any small level. The Jewish spiritual heroes point out in the curators of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yossi of Galilee. He explained the verse, My Shabbos is you shall observe to indicate that certain labors may be performed on the Shabbos, like work in the temple, in order to save a human life. 
And the Jewish spiritual heroes also points out the Amara, the Amoraim, excuse me, of Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalmi Talmud. In order to save the life of a person, Rabbi Nassan said that it is permissible to desecrate one Shabbos in order that he may observe many Shabboses to come. The introduction to the Babylonian Talmud in Shabbat talks about whenever there is a danger to life, no distinction is made between Torah law and rabbinic law. It is permitted to do whatever is necessary to save a person's life. And that's the point. When we save or help a person now, we are allowing them more time in future to, in effect, help others. The snowball effect. We let them pay it forward. We let them give it forward. And we let them go on to help out others. Lahavda, lahavda, lahavda. There's a movie called Pay It Forward. The idea where one person helps and the next person helps and the next person helps where the whole world helps each other out. I don't like the ending. I'm not going to ruin it. But in, in effect, the Pay It Forward principle talks about how you help someone, they can help someone else. But Moshe Feinstein points out in the care of the critically ill and the quality and sanctity of life. The Talmud Sanhedrin talks about the sanctity of life, that, uh, that to save one life is tantamount to saving the entire world. Life is thus of infinite worth. Saving of life takes precedence over all Torah prohibitions except immorality, idolatry, and murder. The obligation to save a life applies to the individual himself. It becomes the ethical basis of medical care. When ill, a person must seek medical care in order to find a cure. That's the point. Save and help or change someone's life to save, help, or change the entire world. Rav Moshe Feinstein also points out in the care of critically ill, in the Igrat's motion, or Chaim, that all Shabbos laws are suspended in order to allow the Hatzalah volunteer to save a human life. In Mishnah Yumas, they point out even the potential to save a life overrides Shabbos. And the Peninnah Halacha points out, since we want non-Jews to save Jews, we must save them as well. Thus, saving a non-Jew's life is included in the category of Bikuach Nefesh. However, according to all opinions and practice, we desecrate Shabbos to save the life of any person. And that's the last point. Make sure to help or save someone in any manner, especially if there is potential for harm. And help anyone, whether Jew or non-Jew or religious or not. Help all around at all times. So let's recap the points to carry over here on Tani Talks Life. We should do what we can to help another in all ways. Especially physically or in a health manner on Shabbat or the like. Help a person right away. Do not delay. Do not cause in dismay. You can only help and save others if you help and save yourself first. If you have knowledge or skills in a certain area... Help others who need help in that area. For example, if you conquer the smoking addiction, help someone else who has this terrible addiction to save their life from the smoking addiction. If you save one life, whether religiously, physically, spiritually, cognitively, or the like, it is as if you change the, you save the entire world. And I further say, if you change one life in any manner, it is as if you change the entire world. Make sure that there is no stumbling block for a person to save him from danger in any way, whether real blocks or hazards on your property, make sure, don't put any hazard, don't do something that will God forbid hurt them, or trigger them in any way, whether real blocks or hazards on your property, or triggers for him in life, if he's a smoking addict and fighting it, don't bring him to a place with a lot of smokers and triggers, we need to chip into self, to help save anyone in any manner possible, if a rabid dog is chasing someone, go after the person and the dog to help in whatever manner we can help, if someone needs help, don't use any excuses or quote-unquote halacha or false piety to try to get out of helping as an excuse. Don't be overtly or extra pious in a nonsensical manner 
or situation. Help the person no matter what, especially if the other gender or a different type of situation. Do not stand by idly. Do not have the bystander effect. Be the bystander to make the effect, to effect the good solution. Make sure you intervene and help. Do what we can to intervene and save someone on any level, even pretending to cause pain or whatnot on a person to get them out of a dangerous situation. When we save or help a person now, we're allowing them more time in future to, in effect, help others. The snowball effect, we help them and hopefully they pay it forward and give forward and do more good for everyone around the world. Save and help or change someone's life to save, help or change the entire world. Make sure to help or save someone in any manner, even if there's potential for harm. And help anyone, whether Jew or non-Jew or religious or not. Help all around at all times. Do what you can to be involved in helping one in any which way. The bystander effect came about because of the tragic, sad case of someone being killed in front of bystanders, whether 38 or less. The point being, on some level, help was not given when it was needed. And it was in front of an apartment building where many, many families live. The bystander effect says there are people around. It's likely that one person will not stand up. But the Jewish way is the opposite. One person can and must stand up. You think about Israel. You think about the case of Mendel. You think about the case of, the, the, of Tully standing up. You think about all these cases and all these situations. The Jewish way is to stand up. You see someone stranded on a mountain, even if he's an Islam person and you're an Israeli person, you help him. We realize that every person has value. We do not believe in the bystander effect. We fight the bystander effect. We know the soul burns within. We must do what we can to save them and help them physically or spiritually, literally or figuratively. Right in front of you, metaphorically, different ways you must help the person. You have a talent, help them. You can learn with someone, help them. Reach out, use Aish, use Chabad in any way to help someone religiously. Physically, you, you know martial arts, help someone defend themselves. Or you have a knack, a talent, help them become a better writer, a better speaker. Whatever you could do to help someone, in effect, helps their life, changes their life, or saves their life on some level, you, in effect, can save the world. We must go beyond the knife to save a life. What will you do to go beyond the knife to save a life? This has been Tani Talks Life. God willing, join us in two weeks where we talk of a sheer, of a topic per session with some practical lessons.